Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good. Yourself? Good. As usual, with moving or cleaning, the dust is killing me. Yes. <laughs> Slowly but surely. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah. By the time listeners hear this, we will have moved. Yeah. But at the time of this recording, we're still packing things up and getting ready for it. The last weekend before the move. Yes. If um, we sound a little weird in this week's episode, it's probably because with having put in everything in boxes and moved all the furniture and, and kind of, you know, our apartment's in that very, like, spare state that, you know, a place gets in a few days before moving. So there's a lot more... Um, echo in the room because there's much less stuff to absorb sound in the space around us. So hopefully it's not too bad, but if we sound a little weird this week, that's why. If we sound a little weird, it might also be because we are underwater. Uh, Yes, I was wondering what that stinging in my eyes was and why I was drowning. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, that explains Um, that. How else are we going to interview the creature known... From the Black Lagoon. <laughs> oh, we have an interview on the show this week? What a... <laughs> Didn't what I a, tell you? What an immense change in format. <laughs> hey, we have a new patron. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we have a new patron over at our Patreon on patreon.com slash Podcast. Uh, their name is Keenan. Thanks, Keenan. Thank you so much for signing up with us. Mm-hmm. You can be like Keenan and become a patron of the night by heading over to patreon.com slash Podcast and signing up for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get bonus content. Uh, and if we reach our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we'll start doing bonus episodes on horror-adjacent films Stuff like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, or Hocus Pocus, or... Really? You'd let us watch Hocus Pocus? I don't know, maybe. I, I'm i not a big fan of that movie, but... I am. I know. Uh, and I know that the <laughs> concept of, like, reviewing some of these horror-adjacent movies is something that Keenan, in particular, like, really is looking forward to seeing us do. Cool. Well, um, hope Keenan's dreams... Or nightmares come true. Mm. And join Scream Scenes, patrons of the night. The creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, Is more... it the creature or just a creature? The creature from so the, the Black Lagoon. So he's singular. Yes. Or they. We, we can't assume. No, he's definitely a he. <laughs> more typically, the creature is referred to as the Gill Man. Okay. I think to avoid confusion over who you're talking about when you say the creature versus Frankenstein's mm-hmm. monster. Yeah. Um, but the Gill Man is definitely male because of all the monsters who whip up a girl in their arms and kind of take them off to their lair. The motivation of the Gill Man is the least subtextual. Okay. And he is considered to be one of the classic universal monsters alongside Frankenstein's monster and Dracula and the Wolf Man and the Mummy and the Invisible Man and those guys, the Phantom of the Opera. That always seems strange to me because it comes... So much later. Yeah, Yeah, ten years after. Exactly. 
Um, yeah, the creature is interesting because he is part of this, you know, 1950s wave of horror, and he's kind of unique in being an identifiable, iconic monster of that period who isn't an alien mm-hmm. or the result of nuclear radiation. Oh, really? Yeah. Did we get his origin in the movie? Yes. The Gill Man, though, is just like a very old-fashioned, like, you know, last survivor of an ancient dying race kind of creature, the same way that... Um, the Loch Ness Monster is? Right, or like <laughs> King Kong or, or, you know, monsters like that in older films. Okay. Not really tied in to the Cold War scares of the 1950s or the sci-fi trends of the time. Very much a throwback kind of movie. And I think that's part of why he gets counted with the classic monsters. But, yeah, this is a very... Um, significant film for Universal just in terms of that cultural cachet because they haven't really been the leaders in horror for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. You just said that you haven't seen this movie. Correct. Uh, I have, and I knew about this movie for years before I ever saw it because it's a favorite of my dad's. And it's really a favorite of my dad's more just through, like, nostalgia than anything else, because according to him, this movie was always on TV all the time when he was a kid. Sure. And, like, he saw it, you know, over and over again as a kid on TV growing up in the 1960s. So I I had already heard a lot about it before I ever got a chance to see it myself. The movie began as basically Universal's follow-up to It Came From Outer Space. Okay. And that, was that the one with the kid? No, that was uh, Invaders from Mars. It came from outer space is the one where Richard Carlson's character goes to the meteorite that crashes. Oh, yeah, and the, the alien was so unique. Yeah, and, and there like was a like, floating brain. Yeah, 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 with the big eye and, like, it's kidnapping people and remote controlling them and no one will believe him. Yeah. That one. Yeah, and so this is made by basically the same team as that movie, uh, producer William Olland and director Jack Arnold. Uh, For more information on those guys and on It Came From Outer Space and the crew involved in making that movie, you can head back to episode 161 for more info. But the impetus for this project actually occurred more than 10 years earlier. Uh, So as I mentioned in that episode, William Olland had been an actor before he was a movie producer. Uh, And as an actor, he's probably best known as portraying the reporter Thompson, who is the protagonist of Orson Welles' 1941 classic Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. And at the rap party for Citizen Kane, Alan was told a story by Mexican cinematographer Gabriel Figueroa about a half-man, half-fish creature that lived in the Amazon River. And it uh, would threaten this, like, village that sat upon the river, and so once a year the village would give the fish man a virgin girl from the village, and she would be dragged down into the depths, never to be seen again, and then the village wouldn't see the creature again until that same time next year. And the story got a pretty good laugh at the party, although Figueroa insisted that it was absolutely true. I don't think it is. (laughs) I mean, maybe there's a village that does something like this, but I don't think there's actually a half-fish, half-man creature. Yeah, that's probably a good instinct, Sarah. (laughs) 
so good instinct to have in the year of our Lord 2020. Yeah, to to assume that outlandish stories are not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, who knows? It is 2020. So, ten years later, Alan's a producer at Universal International, and he's looking for, you know, a new horror picture to follow up It Came From Outer Space. And he remembers this story of the Amazon fish man. He conjures up some story notes for uh, a film at the time that he's calling The Sea Monster. And his ideas are based primarily on Beauty and the Beast and King Kong uh, as like a baseline. Sure. That makes sense that he would, you know, go to those major stories. Uh, The assignment to expand this out into a full story treatment was given to writer Maurice Zim. And then from that, a screenplay entitled The Black Lagoon was written by writers Harry Essex and Arthur Ross. And Essex had written It Came From Outer Space. Okay. Perhaps having learned their lesson from, like, their previous movies, Alan had the writers intentionally create an ambiguous ending to the script uh, from the get-go so that they could have a sequel if the movie was successful. (laughs) So from the very beginning, the movie was planned to leave it unclear as to the fate of the creature. He's thinking like a producer. Mm-hmm. Alan's original King Kong-esque story treatment, therefore, was cut in half. And this film basically doesn't contain any of the, like, back-to-civilization parts of the Kong story. Okay. Because, you know, we gotta leave something for the sequel. Yeah. I mean, not according to the guys who made King Kong. You just go to the sun. Right. But, you know, this is, we're planning ahead this time. <laughs> there was no plan for Son of Kong when they made King Kong. So, naturally, Jack Arnold was brought back to direct this movie, and like It Came From Outer Space, this would be produced in black and white and in 3D. In addition to being shot in 3D, this is our first film since, I think, The Bat Whispers to come to us in widescreen, which was the other major technical gimmick of the 1950s. Yeah. Um, However, true anamorphic widescreen, which I've described in past episodes, uh, is sort of inherently incompatible with the way that 3D cameras work, just due to the, like, complexity of the optics. Yeah, I think we talked about that in the House of Wax episode. Mm Mm-hmm. So, this film, to be in widescreen and 3D, was actually shot in a process called open matte, which is basically a fake widescreen process. (laughs) <laughs> where the film is shot normally with a square, full 35mm frame, but then when you're filming, you frame up your shots for widescreen. The viewfinder will have like little guidelines on it. And then when the film is shown in theaters, the projector has a mat on it on the top and bottom of the frame, and you basically rack your focus to blow up the image to fill the wider screen. Now, open matte is a really common technique to get cheap widescreen, and it gives you a aspect ratio that's basically close to what we now have today for our widescreen television sets. But back in the day, when our TVs were square, and you had, like, full screen releases of movies for um, TV or on VHS or whatever... Open matte shot films were kind of a blessing and a curse because you could just take the 
negative as shot and just use it rather than having to do pan and scan and crop around. Mm -hmm. But because those films were shot with the expectation that those parts of the frame wouldn't be seen, a lot of times if you watch the open mat version of a film shot like that, you'll see boom mics or lights or all kinds of like quote unquote mistakes that aren't mistakes because they were never meant to be seen in the frame. Now, on top of the 3D and the, you know, open mat widescreen, a significant amount of this movie is also underwater photography. Yeah, and an underwater camera wasn't invented until Thunderball, which I think is like in the 60s. Yeah, Kevin McClory had a patent on an elaborate underwater camera. Uh, the way that the underwater shooting is done in this movie um, is very much the way it was done traditionally, which is basically that you put your camera in a box with a glass window and you shoot out the box. Um, <laughs> but in this case, you need to take a 3D camera rig, which, if you remember, is two cameras facing each other with a like exactly placed bit of mirror in between them, and then stick that in a box looking out a window and then that box is mounted on a crane hanging down into the water from a boat so you can maneuver the camera. And then the whole thing is operated by a dude sitting on a chair mounted to that rig wearing a scuba outfit. Wow. Yeah. That is very complicated. Yes. Uh, in between It Came From Outer Space and this movie, Arnold had directed a 3D film noir called The Glass Web starring Edward G. Robinson. For this movie, Arnold's primary interest as a filmmaker was in creating a sense of dread in the audience. What he wanted to do was sort of exploit the fear of what lies beneath the surface of the water, specifically that kind of feeling that you get when something brushes past your leg in the water and you don't know what it was. Awesome. That is a real fear. Did you ever have, like, baths as a kid and, like... You know, your, your face is underwater because you're, like, washing out your hair or something. And then you're suddenly like, oh, shit, what if there's a shark? No, I never <laughs> had that as a kid because I was in a bathtub with no connection to the ocean. Well, no, it would be swimming through the drains, Ben. No, the drains are very small, <laughs> you see, is the thing. But no, <laughs> I, I, I had, like, fears of what was in the... Like, so I'm very afraid of, like, things that live in the deep ocean and, like... Yes. The, the parts of the ocean where, like, you can't get light down into are extremely terrifying to me for, like, existential, like, reasons. But as a kid, like, it would be like going to a lake, right? Or, like, even, even like, man-made lakes, uh, like Lake Bonavista, for instance, like, just, like, that feeling of, like, seaweed or, you know, undersea dirt or whatever, like, brushing past your leg or anything like that. I, I fucking hate, hate that shit. Um... <laughs> So I have that fear, but, like, no, I never had, like, fears of what lay beneath the surface of the bathtub water. No. <laughs> not saying it was rational. I, I, I'm sure it wasn't, you know? <laughs> I'm just saying I didn't have that. So the biggest challenge in making the movie was in designing and creating the Gill Man himself. This was, you know, a completely new visual, right? Like, it's not... Dracula or or the Frankenstein monster or the Wolfman where you kind of have like an idea going in like well here's what this should probably look like. Yeah, where like man is kind of underlying 
what those creatures look like. Right. This has to look like a completely different life form that is still man-like enough in, like, shape and form that an actor can portray it and that, like, the audience can still, like, make a connection with it, but, like, you know, has to look like this different thing. It So it really required, like, from the ground up work. And then, you know, you also needed to create a suit that would work just as well underwater as on land, both practically and visually, right? Mm-hmm. So the primary design work was done by concept artist Millicent Patrick. She worked on... It, it came, came from, from outer, outer space. space. That's right. She was a former Disney artist who had come to Universal and was in their concept art department, which wasn't really a thing at the time. She actually worked in the makeup department under Bud Westmore, uh, who was you know the head of the Universal makeup department. And you know, continuing on from the 1940s, the makeup department was responsible for creating these monsters. Right, even as they got sort of more and more elaborate, and things like the aliens from It Came from Outer Space, kind of you know, start to get beyond what you would um, nowadays consider, like, the purview of the makeup department. Yeah. Right? It's, like, makeup adjacent because it's more of, like, a... It's kind of like a cross between makeup and costume. Right. And, like, you have special effects makeup, you know, that you still see on things to this day. You know, think Star Trek where people have, like, prosthetics and stuff to make them look like aliens. But there's a certain, like, line that you cross where it turns into like, a costume thing, right? But anyways, at the time, she worked in the makeup department as a concept artist under Bud Westmore. And so she's the one who designed the creature. She based it on 16th century woodcuts depicting a creature known at the time as a sea monk. Um, Sea monk. Yes, which was a supposed creature that, like would die and then the body would wash up on shore and like Europeans would find it. And it supposedly looked like a fish that had like a human face that then like had like a covering over the head, like a monk's hood. Like it, it, and like the body of it was supposed to look like, you know, someone wearing monk's robes. Um, what this probably actually was, was a misinterpretation of an angel shark, which is also called a monkfish. You can kind of look it up and see vaguely how they might have gotten that. But um, when a creature is dead and washes up on shore, they look completely different. Regardless, the woodcuts of what these creatures looked like sort of are another step removed from that. Because they literally just look like scaly monk fish men. Yeah. Uh, so that's where she took a lot of her inspiration. Prosthetics crafter Jack Keevan created the bodysuit uh, for Millicent Patrick's designs while artist Charles Mueller Jr. sculpted the head. The suit was made out of foam rubber, and two suits were created, one for on land and one for underwater, uh, with each designed slightly differently for the different needs of those two mediums. Additionally, the Gill Man was portrayed by two different performers. On land... He was six foot five, a former Marine, Ben Chapman, who was chosen for his height and his strength and his physical endurance. Yeah, because foam rubber is not light. No, and getting in and out of the suit was difficult enough that it was impractical to let the performers in and out of it between takes. Mm-hmm. So you had to be in it for the whole 14 hour day. And this was 
additionally a problem because you would get very overheated under the lights, and you couldn't sit down in it because it didn't bend properly for you to do that. So in order to give the two different performers playing the Gill Man um, sort of a break, they would actually be laid down in a small pool (laughs) um, to just, like, rest. That's so cute. Oh, it's like it's like Gilman actually needed oh some water. Right. In the underwater scenes, the Gilman was portrayed by professional swimmer and diver Riku Browning, who had developed a career as an underwater stuntman. And after this movie, he would continue developing his career to become an underwater cameraman and then an underwater second unit director. He directed the underwater action scenes for movies like Thunderball in 1965. Yeah, I was going to ask um, if he was involved in Thunderball. (laughs) And he also co-created the Flipper franchise in the 1960s. that makes sense. Neither of these two men is credited in the film itself, sort of continuing on Universal's customs of the time of wanting to keep the creatures, you know, mysterious. Yes. The sculpted eyes in the head of the creature could not be seen through. So both performers were blind oh, no. uh, performing in the movie. And underwater too. It, that must have been like, well, he's experienced, but I would find that terrifying. Both suits were painted green, but the land suit uh, was painted in a slightly darker shade than the underwater suit. Uh, this was done to sort of help both of them show properly on black and white film. So they look like they're the same color in the movie, but the underwater suit being lighter makes it stand out more easily in the underwater scenes. Yeah, less light coming down. Mm-hmm. When shooting the underwater sequences, Browning had to hold his breath for up to four minutes at a time because the creature breathes through its gills and thus should not produce any air bubbles. Yeah. So the suit itself had no air tank, and they couldn't have any of his breath be coming in and out of it either. So he would have to hold his breath for the entire time they were doing a take. That's so dangerous. The scenes on the water and underwater were shot on location in Florida, while Chapman's scenes uh, on land were shot back in Universal City in California. Uh, so the two men actually never met each other during production. <laughs> Uh, The way the suit was constructed, the performers had a bulb in the palm that they could squeeze that would move the gills to make it look like the gills were breathing. Um, And then they could also move their chin to move the mouth of the the suit. But that was basically about it in terms of, like, mobility. And they had, like, no visibility at all. So when you watch, like, Browning, for instance, in this movie Swimming, you have to remember that, like, he's pulling off all of these swimming motions in a very heavy foam rubber suit that is 100% encasing him, that has, you know, not much, by the way, of, like, joints built into it, and he can't see. Or breathe. Right. Um, As you might imagine, the lack of visibility led to several accidents. Yeah. Uh, When carrying actress Julie Adams in his arms... Ben Chapman, you know, he's carrying her through these caves, these, like, grotto caves, and he did, at one point, accidentally scrape her head against a cave wall, because she was supposed to be unconscious, so her eyes were closed, and he can't see jack shit, because he can't (laughs) see out of the mask, so he just, like, 
bammed her head against this, like, cave wall and gave her a big scrape across the forehead. Now you're really unconscious. Yeah. Uh, later on, there's a fight scene in the movie between actor Bernie Gozier and Chapman in the suit. And they had to rehearse this fight scene for a really long time before doing it because the fact that he couldn't see and the suit was really hard to move around in. Uh, so come time to shoot the fight, and what's supposed to happen is Gozier is supposed to swing at Chapman with a machete. And then Chapman's supposed to, like, grab Gozier's arm and kind of catch the machete, like, mid-swing, right? And Chapman misses Gozier's arm, and the machete hits Chapman square in the head. But luckily, the foam rubber of the headpiece is so thick that Chapman is completely unharmed. Wow. So Ben Chapman passed away in 2008 at age 79, while Rico Browning at age 90 is the only surviving performer of any of the Universal classic monsters. Wow. To promote the film, Universal sent Millicent Patrick on a press tour around the country called The Beauty Who Created the Beast uh, to discuss the creation (laughs) of the elaborate creature suit. So that's kind of fun because now they're playing up the right. creation of the suit, whereas it came from outer space. Yeah, it was all secret hush-hush. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think the the publicity department was like, oh, this like beautiful, talented like artist, like woman created this like monster? Oh, that's that's great. That's too good, you know? Unfortunately, Bud Westmore, uh, the head of Universal's makeup department and Patrick's boss, became very jealous of the attention that Patrick was getting. So he had Patrick recalled from the tour, and then upon her return, he informed her that she would no longer be working for Universal International. Then he made sure that she received no credit for the creature in the film itself. Uh, The makeup and special effects are all just credited to Bud Westmore in the movie. And then Westmore spent the next 50 years just burying any evidence that Patrick had worked on the film at all and taking sole credit for the Gilt Man. Uh, the creation and design of the suit. Some of this was motivated for Westmore by the fact that he had taken over the makeup department at Universal from Jack Pierce. And Jack Pierce, of course, was very well known for creating, you know, the memorable makeups for Frankenstein and the Wolfman and all this. But, you know, Westmore came on and those designs already existed. And so I think he felt like he needed to have something like that that would show that, like, he was equal to Jack Pierce as a successor. And probably, like, the rest of his family, mm. too. Yeah, like absolutely. The Westmores, you know, imagine going home and everyone's like, what What have you done? Have, sure. You can't even live up to Jack Pierce. Sure. But I imagine that there's probably an element of, like, fragile masculinity Oh, absolutely, going on. absolutely. And just professional jealousy and the fact that the way that Hollywood kind of worked at the time was the head of the departments got attention. The people under them didn't. And so to have this person, this concept artist, like getting this huge press tour and nobody gives a shit about you and you're her boss, like it's just a bunch of petty ego shit, right? Regardless, what this resulted in was basically Bud Westmore getting credit for the creation of the Gill Man for like 50 years. Patrick's career was ruined. She never worked as a designer or concept artist for film or TV ever again. No. Um, she passed away in 1998, and her role as the Gilman's designer only really came to light in the last 10 years or so. 
uh, thanks to researchers like Vincent DeFate and Mallory O'Mara. Um, O'Mara wrote a book last year called, um, I think it's The Lady from the Black Lagoon, that outlines Millicent's role in the creation of the Gill Man. That being said, while she was alive, uh, sci-fi superfan Forrest J. Ackerman did do his best to try to promote her in his magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland in the 1970s and, like, raise awareness that she was the creator of the creature. Um, but it never really took, I guess, because, you know, well, Bud Westmore's name is there on the movie and all this kind of stuff. And it really took until very recently when I think people have become a lot more aware of and like attuned to stories of like women whose credit has been stolen from them throughout history by men. Like that's enough of a known, I feel like story now that Mm -hmm. we can hear it and be like, Oh yeah, here's another example rather than like, well that doesn't sound right. Like I've never heard of this chick before and Bud Westmore is Bud West. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's only really been recently where she's gotten the, um, acclaim for her work that she deserved. That's real sad, Ben. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. So, in our um, bland protagonist role, uh, we have <laughs> Richard Carlson, who was the lead actor in It Came From Outer Space. He was also the lead actor in The Maze. Mm-hmm. And he returns to work with Jack Arnold and the team here again in the role of Dr. David Reed. That's funny. Reed, and it's a lagoon. <laughs> sure. Now, since the film The Maze, he had appeared in three movies, including the sci-fi picture Riders to the Stars, which he also directed. Good for him. After Creature from the Black Lagoon, Carlson played the lead on the late 1950s television series Mackenzie's Raiders, and then in the 1960s, he directed a lot of TV. He passed away at age 65 in 1977. Our lead actress here is Julie Adams, who was born Betty May Adams in 1926. She was the winner of a beauty contest at age 19, and she received her screen name when she signed to Universal International in 1949. And she appeared in a huge variety of roles over her career in movies and TV. Um, Never really, like, hit it big, but, like, worked reliably her whole career. Uh, She acted until 2018, and she passed away in 2019 at age 92. Wow. Yeah. Good for her. Despite her long career, she was always best remembered for Creature from the Black Lagoon, which was something that she took in, like, good spirits. Yeah, you kind of have to, you know? She went to, like, horror cons, and she went to, like, anniversary screening events, and, you know, so she she was at those kind of things. Same with Ben Chapman. He went to all these, like, cons and stuff later in life. Um, she enjoyed making the movie. She thought it was a lot of fun and she believed that it's popularity and longevity to have resulted from audience sympathy for the creature. Uh, she said something along the lines of, I think it touches something in the darker parts of ourselves that longs to be loved, but thinks it never really can be. Okay. She was doubled in the underwater scenes by stuntwoman Ginger Stanley, who was five years younger than Adams and whose career specialized in doing underwater swimming stunts. Co-starring in the film is actor Richard Denning, who was born Louis Albert Heinrich Denninger Jr. in (laughs) 1914. 
That's and, a long uh, name. <laughs> yes. He um, got like a bachelor's in business management and he was supposed to take over his father's garment manufacturing business. So his father, therefore, being Louis Albert Heinrich Denninger Sr. Um, however, after serving in World War II, he developed an interest in acting. And so he changed his name to Richard Denning in order to pursue an acting career. He worked regularly as an actor until his retirement in 1980. His final role was as the governor of Hawaii on Hawaii Five-0. <laughs> uh, and he passed away in 1998. In 1942, he married Evelyn Ankers, oh. with whom he had a daughter, and they remained together until her death in 1985. That's fun. Yeah. Two horror stars. Another supporting actor in this film is Spanish-born Antonio Marino. Born in 1887, he had been a matinee idol in Hollywood in the silent era, but come the rise of sound, his career took a hit due to his accent, so he moved to Mexico and became an acclaimed director. He even directed Santa, the first Mexican talkie, in 1932. In the 1940s and 50s, Marino resumed his Hollywood acting career by taking on character parts like what he does in this movie. There are a number of other very well-recognized character actors in this movie, uh, like Whit Bissell, who is in this movie because apparently he was just in everything. <laughs> um, he has like 321 acting credits from 1933 to 1984. Wow. Another actor who appears alongside him is Perry Lopez. Uh, both of them would appear on episodes of the original Star Trek. But Lopez is probably best known today for his role as Lieutenant Escobar in Chinatown from 1974. So Creature from the Black Lagoon cost $500,000 for Universal to produce. It was released in 3D on February 12th, 1954, to critical acclaim and financial success, grossing $3 million by the end of the year. Wow. This success would lead to immediate production starting on a sequel. <laughs> Thinking ahead, then. Yep. That all worked out. Yep. Uh, eventually, two sequels would be made. There's been numerous attempts to remake it over the years, but none of them have ever really come to fruition. Of course, however, the film is the inspiration for Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water in 2017, which would win Best Picture. Yeah. Yeah. Today, you can see The Creature from the Black Lagoon on DVD or Blu-ray, either on its own or as part of the Creature from the Black Lagoon Legacy Collection. Uh, it can also be rented on iTunes, Google Play, Cineplex, Microsoft, and YouTube. Uh, I kind of feel like it's finally a film that's easy for a listener to get. Yeah. Because the last three episodes have been these Mexican horror films that are not necessarily obscure, but very difficult to find. Yes. Well, I'm super excited. Um, folks, if you would like to watch along... Ben has told you where to find a copy, and probably the easiest way to find it is on our YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Creature from the Black Lagoon from 1954, directed by Jack Arnold. See you on the other side, everybody.
Welcome back, everybody. We just finished watching Creature from the Black Lagoon from 1954, directed by Jack Arnold. So, Sarah, this was your first time seeing this um, famous film. What did you think? I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. There were many moments where I was like, oh, yeah, the people who made Jaws saw this movie. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Um, It would be kind of fun to do a double feature of this and Jaws. Yeah, I quite enjoyed this. The creature design and suit and acting of the creature is, like, super great. Um, lots of fun. Yeah, I quite enjoyed this. Yeah, it's it's basically, I think, everything you kind of want it to be. Yeah. It's, you know, exactly a 1950s horror sci-fi B-movie, but... It's being produced at like a craft level that's high enough that means it's not, it doesn't actually suck. Would this have been considered a B movie given that it has like the 3D and everything? No, no, not really. And when I say B movie, what I mean is like, you know, this movie is not a movie with a lot of like aspirations. It's not trying to be even really about anything. Yeah. This is a movie that's just here to entertain us at the drive through while we're on like a date, you know, kind of thing. But it's being produced at a high enough, like, craft level that it doesn't look schlocky. You know, they can afford to actually have things happening and show you the monster as much as you kind of want to see it. Show us some blood. Yeah, yeah. And, like, it's a it's a competently made movie. It It basically, you know, if you're someone who wants to watch an old 50s date night kind of movie like this... You should be watching this rather than, like, one of the many, you know, public domain films because those actually suck. (laughs) Yeah, I think this is, like, the perfect date movie to cuddle up with your partner um, and get real close. And then as they get tense during some underwater scenes, you you tickle and they scream and, yeah, perfect. Right. So the, the plot line here is pretty simple and, as we talked about in the context setting like it's it's very much molded after king kong Mm -hmm. um but it you know has its own specifics so why don't you take us through the storyline and the main characters before we dig into the movie in any more detail sure let's dive into the depths yes of the black lagoon that's right we get a fantasia opening (laughs) of seeing the beginning of the earth's formation oh yeah 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 Okay, I was confused what you meant by Fantasia. You mean like the from the dinosaur segment of Fantasia. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and this sets the scene for geologist Dr. Carl Maya to find a fossil in the Amazon of a hand with webbed fingers. And he must get this to the Institute right away. Leaving his two assistants at the camp, Dr. Maya takes the fossil to the Institute and reconnects with his old student and now marine biologist, Dr. David Reed, and his fiancée, Kay, who works as an assistant at the Institute. Specifically, she works as an assistant with the Institute's lead scientist, Dr. Mark Williams. So, we get a little bit of an explanation of how fish research gives insight into our evolutionary past, as well as the future, as we venture into space and new environments. This is also when we see how Dr. Williams is a scientist, but he's very focused on 
you know, successful findings to get funding for the Institute so we can all have jobs. Yes. It's not necessarily a bad guy. Yeah, he's just positioned, because he's the pragmatic one, he's kind of positioned as an antagonistic force versus David, who's more idealistic. Absolutely. But he agrees for this expedition to go find the rest of this fossil. And so this expedition is made up of Dr. Williams, Dr. Maya, Dr. David Reed, Kay, and a Dr. Edwin Thompson. When they get to the camp, they discover that some wild animal has attacked and killed Maya's two assistants. Now, we as the audience got to see that it was the Gill Man, but they think it's a jaguar. The excavation of where the fossil was found shows that there is no more fossil to be found, so they decide to go further downstream to a lagoon known as the Black Lagoon, theorizing that um, perhaps that part of this cliffside might have fallen into the river and settled further downstream. So Mark, um, Dr. Williams, the the pragmatic one, and David, uh, our hero, um, they go scuba diving into the lagoon to pick up some rock samples to date what the sediment here is. Um, and Kay decides to just go swimming because it's a hot day and it's a nice looking lagoon. And while they don't know what's down here, she's going to go swimming anyways. Mm-hmm. While Mark and David are scuba diving, we get to see some glimpses of Gilman kind of stalking them, just being like, what, what's, what are these guys? What are they doing? Mm-hmm. But quickly, Gilman is taken aback by the vision of Kay swimming and just kind of swims alongside her and, like, touches her legs and she kind of freaks out a little, but she's, you know, whatever. He follows Kay as she swims back to the, to the boat and um, he briefly gets caught in the net of the boat. Um, nearly pulling the rig off the boat with how strong he is. He manages to escape the net, but he leaves behind a claw, alerting the crew to his existence rather than his supposed extinction. So first, they try to catch the creature on camera. That is what David plans to do, but Mark brings a spear gun because we don't know what this thing is. Mm-hmm. And they're like, really? You're going to try to kill it? And he's like, we don't know what this thing is, guys. Yeah, the movie generally positions Mark as an antagonist because he you know, wants money and he wants fame and he's ambitious and he brought a gun and he's going to try to spear the monster rather than like leave it alone and all this kind of stuff. Um, but the thing about Mark is that he's right every step of the way. <laughs> um, like Mark, Mark, sh- you know, Mark is that meme of like Hannibal Burris being like, why are you booing me? I'm right. <laughs> um, and I'll get into that maybe more later when we discuss the film. Sure. So there's no dice in catching the Gale man on film. They do encounter him and Mark shoots him with the spear gun. Um, it appears to injure him, but we don't see him die or anything. He just kind of swims away. Later, Gilman comes under the boat and kills a crewman in revenge. Does he have agency? (laughs) Next, they try to catch Gilman using a chemical called rhodonone, which is a real chemical and basically just depletes 
the water of some oxygen, so fish float up to the surface and are kind of like dazed or paralyzed. So first they do it and they're like, oh, well, maybe it's not enough. So then they get bigger pellets, so it goes deeper into the water. With the larger pellets of Rodanone, they are able to um, kind of track the creature down. Um, he comes under the boat and then they're like, hey, you, and he jumps off and they follow the creature into these underwater caves in kind of like a grotto, and they discover that there is actually a beach opening um, to these caves. Now, in David and Mark kind of finding these caves and following the creature, um, the creature, Gilman, he comes onto the beach where Kay and another crewman um, have docked to try to, like, be out of harm's way, and the crewman gets killed, and Kay almost gets abducted. But because Gilman is, like, dazed from the chemical, they are able to capture him, and they put him in this bamboo cage on the ship that is under the water so, you know, he can breathe. This doesn't last long, though, because he escapes and attacks Dr. Edwin Thompson. Um, doesn't kill him, just really disfigures his face. He, he <laughs> He's wrapped up like the Invisible Man for the rest of the movie. Yeah. So enough is enough. It's time to leave. They're cutting their losses. Um, except Mark is like, no, we, we've we come this far. Like, we should just kill this thing. Yeah, David's like, you know, we weren't really here to fight monsters. Like, we were here to, like, get fossils. Let's go back and then, like, come back later with, like, a big, you know, team that's, like, outfitted for this shit. Like, come back with the guys from Atlantis, the Lost Empire, and, like, you know, uh, <laughs> come and get this thing. And Mark's position is, like, basically, like, we're here now, yeah. right? Speaking of poor Dr. Thompson and his mutilated face, you know, if you haven't seen the Gill Man, his fingers, like, they're not just webbed. They are they are definitely, like, clawed <laughs> quite extremely. And his standard method of attacking people seems to just be, like, putting his hand over your face and just sort of clawing your face off. Just scrunching. Yeah. Mark is kind of shot down for um, staying and killing the monster, but Gilman kind of makes the decision for them because he has managed to block the exit from the Black Lagoon with some downed trees. Now they are trapped. And he continues to sabotage their attempts to remove these logs. So David goes in with the scuba gear to try to fix it, and Mark follows with spear guns. And they get into an altercation with Gilman, which leads to Mark's death. And it's kind of gruesome. It's it's like a really good fight scene. There's mud flowing up in the water, and then you know Mark is dead because he's just kind of floating lifelessly to the surface. It's pretty well done. So at this point, they're like, fuck. Like, there's no way for us to get these logs out of the way. Um, and the creature is very deadly. Like, he's killed so many people. Like, we're mm -hmm. fucked. Um, but then they come up with this idea of putting the rotenone drug um, into, like, this, like, pressurized spray thing, retrofitting one of these um, scuba air kits, aqualungs, they call it, so that way they can basically, like, spray a concentrated solution of rotenone into the creature's face um, to kind of keep them away so they can clear out this, these logs. And that manages to work. Um, and as they're lifting up the logs, everyone's focused on 
on getting the way clear that they don't notice the creature has come back onto the boat and grabs Kay and dives into the water. David follows the creature underwater into these underground caves and finds Kay um, kind of just like lazed out on a rock in a foggy grotto. Steamy, probably. Steamy grotto. The other people on the crew have been told to go through the beach entrance. So David is basically fighting Gilman, and then the crew members come in through the beach opening and shoot Gilman with real guns instead of just spear guns. They manage to rescue Kay, and the creature stumbles away, and they're about to finish shooting him, and David's like, no, he's had enough. And Gilman dives into the water and dies? <laughs> he, uh, you can see bullet holes in him, and he's staggering, and he can't use one arm, and he kind of, like, dives in and swims deep, and then kind of stops moving, and then the last thing you see in the movie is just his uh, seemingly lifeless body just kind of floating there. Mm-hmm. So it's, like... Ambiguous. Yeah. He could be dead if there isn't a sequel, and he might still be alive if there is a sequel. Exactly. So... Yeah, it's it's like it's a pretty simple straightforward story. I think the cast in this movie deserves a lot of credit. Yeah. Because I mean, no one here is really like giving an Oscar-winning performance or anything, but they're all doing a really good job of making their characters believable even though the characters are very two-dimensional, yes. right? Like nobody here has a lot of depth, but <laughs> except maybe the lagoon. Right. None of the characters come off as, you know, in the way that sometimes characters in these movies can, which is, like, very stilted and unbelievable. Yeah, no one here is David Manners. <laughs> you know, sure. everyone here is doing their part. Um, and I think Julie Adams does really good. Yes. Um, she is really good at showing support for David, trying to balance between David and Mark's um, opposing views, um, is sufficiently scared by the creature. Yeah, she manages to really walk that line of being like, you know, the damsel in distress who needs to get rescued, but also is like believably a like research assistant. And then like also, you know, a romantic interest and all these things while like maintaining like ability. Mm-hmm. Like she's much better at doing this, um, than like, you know, your, your Evelyn Anchors, mm-hmm. you know, types, right? Plus, she's very cute. Oh, yeah. Julie Adams is distractingly beautiful, um, which, I mean, is good because that's the plot. Yeah. Right? Like, the whole plot of the movie is Gilman has, like, a big boner for Kay. That's, like, all of his attacks on the ship, even when he kills other crew, like, his goal is to get at Kay. That's, mm-hmm. that's the goal here, right? Julie Adams, I've also always found when I watch this movie that I find her to be, like, eerily reminiscent of Jennifer Connelly, like a young Jennifer Connelly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a little bit distracting for, I think like a modern audience. Yeah. But, um, yeah, she's really good in the movie. I think, I think all the actors are pretty good. Like Richard Carlson's doing a good job here. And I think, like I mentioned at the beginning that I think the suit is really well done, but I think, um, which actor was in the suit during the water scenes? Oh, that was Rico Browning. Yeah, Rico Browning does a really cool thing while swimming 
which is that it doesn't look like a human swimming, mm-hmm. and it doesn't look like a front crawl kind of swimming. It, it looks honestly like how a creature would swim if it was like bipedal with like arms yeah. and gills. Yeah, and, but like native to the water. Like yeah. it's a kind of serpentine swimming kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's his movement underwater is like amazingly smooth considering, you know, the weight and the pressure and the visibility issues and all of these things. Like it's he looks very convincing. Um yeah, I think overall, just between the suit and the actor's movements and everything, that the Gilman is a really, like, masterful illusion. Like, you can't see any seams in the costume, really. And there isn't any obvious, like, things you can look at and point to and be like, oh, that that looks fake. Yeah. You know? Like, even when, um, like, they mainly do this when he's on land, um, where he does, like, the fish thing of, like, opening his mouth and, mm-hmm. like trying to breathe and his gills move in time with that. So that was really well done. Yeah. Um, the only thing with Gill man that I, I kind of like was a little disappointed with is when he's on land, he's still just walking towards the girl with arms outstretched. Yeah. It's that very typical universal monster kind of look. Now, Ben Chapman is blind. Like, he cannot, like, not himself personally, but, like, in the suit, right? Yeah. So, with that in mind, you can kind of see where some of these staggered <laughs> movements are coming from with the arms outstretched. Like, yeah. And, like, also, to be fair, like, in the plot, those moments are when he's kind of drugged. Yes. So, there's that. But, like, he's very um, threatening in the water. The and only... does a really good job with the um, first stalking scene where he's stalking Kay. Oh, yeah, that's a wonderfully shot scene. Um, the only unconvincing thing about the Gilman in my mind is when he is out of the water, they do give him some like roaring noises and they're like these, you know, deep, like kind of like roaring sounds. And I get that, you know, they're meant to sound threatening, but they, I don't believe that those noises are coming from that creature. Really? Yeah. I just don't find them to be. I don't know what I think Gilman should sound like, <laughs> but he shouldn't sound like some sort of, like, you know, jungle, sharp-toothed carnivore. I found his roars to be quite well done. Like, I kept thinking about um, Frogman. Right. Maze, yeah, with the where, like, they elephant. Were, yeah, they were, like, mixing some different sounds, and it was, like, I think, like, really cool. But this felt very uh, realistic in a neat way. I do think that Gilman is a much better depiction of, like, a humanoid amphibian than Frogboy was. Yes. Um, I, I also, like, what kind of sold me on Gilman's roar is when he attacks the two assistants mm. in the tent. Mm. Um, and you haven't really seen his full face yet, but mainly just his swinging claws. Um, and you see the tent shaking back and forth. It really reminded me of... A few scenes in Jurassic Park. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And especially the way that the, um, the the roars sounded then. It reminded me of even the opening of Jurassic Park when the guy's like, shoot her! Well, you know, if, if, if this is... If we, if we want to say this movie's an influence on Jaws, then it has to be an influence on Jurassic Park too, because those are the same filmmaker. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, it's, it's kind of cool how there are, like, scenes in 
creature from the Black Lagoon that you can directly tie to Jaws, mainly when the creature is in the net and mm-hmm. it's like pulling down the, yeah. the boat yeah, and blocking yeah. it. Um, and those moments in Jurassic Park. Yeah. I think that's one of the more rewarding things sometimes about going back to old films is being able to trace lines of descent mm-hmm. of like ideas and moments, right? Speaking of those dudes who get killed at the start in the tent at the camp, right? The dudes who got left behind. So Mark is basically positioned as like in the moral wrong because he wants to kill the creature like right off. Like once they know that it's a thing that exists, he's loading up the spear gun and David and uh, Kay are both kind of like, well, you know, no. And David's position is basically like, we can learn more from it alive, which like, I mean, I can see what you mean, David, but also, if you want to study... you can learn more when it's dead. Well, because if you want to study an amphibian creature and learn how it's, like, you know, breathing underwater and on land and doing all this stuff, like, dissection is probably what you want to be doing, exactly. right? Not giving it, like, a, a Q&A to fill out. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but regardless, that's David's position. Kay's position is, like, that the creature probably isn't dangerous if you don't bother it, right? That, like, oh, you know, it's it's just going to attack you if you attack it, like, which is a very, you know, normal thinking pattern about animals, right? Like, you know, the animal's more afraid of you than you're afraid of it. It's only dangerous if it thinks it's being threatened. Or cornered. Right. And so, like, if they just leave it be... They can probably get some nice pictures and observe it and be fine. Whereas if they come in aggressively, it'll attack them and then it's dangerous. And so because of that, the movie kind of sets up this idea of like the creature being maybe just uh, misunderstood and it's just defending itself and whatever. Except that the creature's actions completely put that to lie. Yes, because Um, it's a horror movie. Well, yes, but I mean like, you know, the Frankenstein monster isn't dangerous unless you attack him, right? The Gilman is dangerous from the start, and the thing that proves it is the two assistants in the tent, because they have done nothing. They have done nothing to threaten Gilman, they have not entered his territory at all. He just comes out of the water one night, and is like, oh, I will murder you now, and goes into the tent and kills them, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is that, like, okay, you know, Kay was swimming in the lagoon, but that's not threatening the creature. Like... The creature is not attacking the boat for revenge. I mean, maybe it is a little bit. And certainly we know that it's intelligent because it traps them in the lagoon, right? Like, that's not a thing that just an animal would do. So we know it's intelligent. But all of its intelligence is being put towards the goal of getting Kay and uh, making some baby Gilman. So, like, this idea that, like, oh, it's maybe just misunderstood. It's like, no, 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 no. This thing was always going to come after you guys. Yeah. Uh, so in that way, I think, like, Mark was right. <laughs> that, like, no, kill it. And then once... I also feel like once they're trapped and, like, people keep dying, it's kind of like, okay, it's either you or it. So yes. So go out and kill it. Yes, absolutely. And before they get trapped, in fact, the reason they get trapped is because... They actually, you know, as you said, they managed to successfully capture the creature and have it on this, like, cage on the boat. And Mark's position, once they have it trapped, is, okay, cool, we have our specimen, let's get the fuck out of here. Like, we have a living Gilman, we don't need anything else from this site. 
And David's like, well, no, we came here to get, like, these fossils and these rock samples and all these other samples from the lagoon. And, like, the Gill Man's just a bonus to that. Uh, so we should stick around another night and, like, get what we came for and then leave. And that's what gives the Gill Man time to break out of the cage at night when, like, nobody's really around. And, you know disfigure Dr. Thompson, get back into the water, and block their way out of the lagoon. If they had left when Mark said, like, maybe the creature would have still gotten out of that cage, but they would have been on the Amazon, right? At least on their way back to civilization, not trapped in a situation where the Gilman could then start picking them off one by one, right? So no, along the way, every time, Mark is right, and his reward for this is that he ends up dead. Yeah, and probably the more the most gruesome death. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, the aftermath of the assistant's death is pretty gruesome. Like, you see a, a, a mangled hand sticking up, but, I mean, you don't see... The fact that he's you see him, like, floating up towards the water, and you see him bobbing up there, like, it's oof. Yeah, I think Mark's death is a big part of why he's kind of a jerk, mm -hmm. right? Like, why he's he's the guy who's kind of, you're meant to not really like him, so that, like... When he dies, it's, you know... Not quite as horrific. Yeah, exactly. Which it's... is a good way to try to balance that out rather than having a comedic relief. Yes. For the record. Um, he's not quite as bad as, like, those characters that you get in, like, more modern movies where it's, like, he's actively trying to get them all killed so that he can, like, get the Gill Man or something. You know what I mean? Like, like that you would have today in a movie. Yeah, where... or, like, the Admiral on Star Trek. Sure. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm thinking of characters like, you know, in the Alien movies where it's always like, oh, oh I'm going to risk everyone to, like, get this thing, you know, alive, yeah. right? And instead, he's trying to get the thing killed, so he's not really endangering everybody to the, such a degree. But I do I do think that his his personality is a way of making it okay for him to die. Yeah, even when they catch Gill man, he still goes to kill it, and they're like, no, we can catch him alive. Yeah, we can keep him alive on the way, you know, back and have a live subject. The underwater action scenes are done very well. I think they're even done better than Thunderbolt. Oh, well, yeah, because the pacing's better. Yeah. That's the thing about this movie, is it has really good pacing and tension and suspense and action uh, and cinematography, you yeah. know, that's all serving that. Even the, um... I guess it would be mise-en-scene. Like, the underwater set is really cool. Like, there's layers on this, like, this very deep, dark area that mm -hmm. we don't even fully go into. Um, so it really feels like it's expansive and many places to hide. Yeah. Um, I think a big difference between this and, like, Thunderball is, for one thing... Thunderballs from a spy movie. So a lot of the underwater sequences are like people quietly following each other. Yeah. And that gets really... Repetitive. Repetitive and boring because your action... One of the things about underwater action is you're always kind of hampered by the fact that the action is going to be happening at a slightly slower pace than on land because you can't have people like running. Yeah. Um, and then the other problem with Thunderballs action is, you know, you have the big battle climax at the end with like guys shooting spear guns at one another. But... After a while, because they're all in scuba gear, they're just this, like, mass of guys, and you don't really have a big connection to any of them, and it's all the problems of kind of a bloated battle scene, but now with the underwater pacing. One of the smart things here is that it's always really clear who we're looking at. Uh, Gilman is obviously Gilman. 
um, you know, K is, I mean, you know, you're not going to mistake K for any of the boys on this uh, boat, <laughs> but she does, when she's in the water, have like this striking white one-piece bathing suit that makes her always very visually stand out in the frame. Mark and David, one of them has blonde hair, the other has dark hair, but they also do this trick where Mark always wears a large single tank of air, and David's always wearing like two medium tanks of air, so you can always visually tell who is who Mm -hmm. in any of the scenes. Um, And they keep the shots close. Yes. Like, everything feels very close. It would be like, um, at most medium shots, not a lot of long shots, unless you're trying to show Gilman in the background sneaking up on them. Well, and also because um, Browning's having to hold his breath every time, the shot lengths aren't super long either, right? So there's a lot of editing to keep up the pace and keep that sense of speed going when they're underwater. Mm -hmm. The movie's very effective at creating a sense of place. You really believe that they're at this black lagoon in the Amazon and that this movie was all shot in like one place, right? Rather than shot like, you know, across the United States in like two different locations. Yeah. It doesn't feel like that at all. Mm -hmm. So yes, this movie isn't like about anything, Mm. but I did find it interesting. Um, given what you said about the stuff behind the scenes between Bud Westmore and Millicent Patrick is, um, the reason Edwin gets attacked and the creature escapes is because he's talking to Kay. And he's basically saying, like, hey, Kay, like, you don't really owe anything more to Mark. He's kind of stolen your research. Yeah, the, there's there's a lot of interesting um, read-between-the-lines history between, like, Mark and Kay and David. Because what we explicitly learn is, like, Mark hired her. She's been working for him for a long time. And, you know, that's why she feels she needs to defend Mark's positions against David when they get into arguments. And, like, she's David's fiance, and they've been together for six months, and everyone's like, when are you guys getting married? Which, Sarah and I, like, were together for a long time before we got married. So whenever anyone's like, oh, yeah, you guys have been dating six months. When's the wedding? I always get really weirded out. Yeah. But there's also, like, some of the way that um, Richard Denning portrays Mark and his attitudes towards Kay creates this kind of, like, unspoken thing of, like, well, were they an item before she was with David? Well, they talk about his ambitions, so it's like, if he, if they weren't an item before, he's been trying to be an item. Right, and, you know, then it comes to this thing that, that Thompson is talking to her about, where, yeah, he makes this implication that, like, it's her research that has been fueling his rise. Yeah, his rise to the Institute for the research at all, And it's just very interesting that they include that, given the behind the scenes. Yeah, it's a weird parallel. Um, Speaking of all the stuff with the scientists and the research, there's a lot of moments in the movie where they stop and try to, like... Explain it? Well, where they they try to, like, connect this movie to the outer space trend more by being like, well, by knowing how Gilman works, we'll know how aliens work, essentially. (laughs) And that's a little bit ham-fisted. But I did think that the scientists here were depicted really well, and the attempts to, like, ground the story in some scientific basis was pulled off better than it is in a lot of these movies. You know, not that Gilman scientifically makes any sense, 
but by leaving aside other planets and leaving aside radiation and leaving aside glands and leaving aside pseudoscience stuff and just giving us some like real science of like explaining how evolution works and how dead end evolution happens where you have creatures that stop evolving and just are like that for millions of years and how this relates to the past on earth and the development of creatures from water creatures to land creatures. And, you know, giving us that basis means that when we get to Gilman, they don't need to come up with some bullshit explanation. He just gets to be there and they get to go, Oh, this is fascinating and just be scientists. Yeah. Right. And I thought that like the way that it depicts the like struggle between, you know, the search for knowledge and the need for funding Right? And, like, these kind of things. I just felt like, you know, the movie's not believable in a strictly scientific sense, but the work that it does creates verisimilitude, which Mm -hmm. is the suspension of disbelief. Right? They've put the work in enough to convince you that, like, it's okay to come along with them on this ride. Yeah. My one critique Mm. of this movie, Mm. and I can't, I don't know if I can really fault it for this, but the music sting, whenever the creature shows up... The, like, fanfare. Is so close to the opening of the 60s Spider-Man TV show. Oh, that's... Bum, 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 bum. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, like, similar chords or something. But it's just, like, every time I just get the... Dana, 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 dana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Like, it's like, okay. The, the thing for me is that, like having seen this movie before and kind of growing up with its music, um, I'm, I'm really able to keep those two themes separate in my head. The other thing about this music is it is one of the things I think that adds to the fun factor of the movie Mm -hmm. because the music is very over the top. Yeah. It's like, Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like it is, this is not subtle music. This is not music. That's like underscoring the film. This is very much scoring the film and one of the cool things i like about the main sting for the creature is it's being played by some like brass instruments and they're doing i don't know enough about music to know what they're doing but they're doing something in the portrayal to give the notes like this almost like strained kind of quality so that it kind of almost has the cadence of something screeching or or some creature you know screaming, right? Because it's, it's not the clean, like, bum, 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 at the start of the Spider-Man theme. It's this, like, bah, 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 <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> so I, I really, I don't know, I really like that sting, but it is, like, hilarious because it does play like every time the creature shows up. Yeah, it's great. So with all the science in this movie, I did want to address the way this movie opens, which is with a dude being like, in the beginning, God God created created the heaven and the earth. And And then 500 million years later, the earth cooled. Yeah, yeah. And it's like a weird mixing. Right. It's this weird mix of creationism and evolution where we get this quote from Genesis about how God created everything, but then we get this explanation of how, like, the continents formed and the oceans formed, and then how life came out of those oceans and evolved into land-based life. And 
I think for a modern audience, that's really confusing because we tend to think of religion and science, particularly creationism versus evolution, as like these diametrically opposed forces. But this mixing of the two in your understanding of the world was way more common in the 1950s. This idea that you could be religious and be a scientist, right? Like um, my grandfather, you know, I asked him about this once because he was a geologist. And to be a geologist, like, means you have to believe that the Earth is older than, like, 4,000 years and formed in a longer period of time than seven days. Like, you cannot be a geologist and think that. But, like, he was like, yeah, you know, plenty of scientists believe in God. Tons of guys I knew in the field were religious. And this, like, 1950s sense was this mix of, like, this traditional, you know, American religion... But in the 50s, America had a much less, it had a much more complicated relationship with science. Because it was, you know, distrusting of science in some ways because like, oh, science leads to the atom bomb or whatever. But the Cold War with the Soviet Union also meant that like the United States was always striving to be like the best in all things. And science was one of those things. So we wanted to have the smartest scientists and the smartest kids coming up at our education system and that meant having some faith in science and having this kind of mixed view of the world where science was not a enemy to religion. And it's, I think, a viewpoint you don't see as often anymore. So it's a little bit of a weird, interesting thing at the start of this movie. Mm -hmm. But yeah, overall, what I would really say The Creature from the Black Lagoon is, is like a crowd pleaser basically. Yeah, it's a good, fun film. So, Sarah, we both really enjoyed this movie, so now the question is just, how much? <laughs> so, um, where were you looking for ranking? Well, I... I did really like this movie. Um, so I started looking at around where the name brand Universal Monsters are. Sure. And I kind of settled at The Wolfman at mm -hmm. number 19, mm -hmm. which was about something. Right. But it was also a crowd pleaser. Mm -hmm. um, so I was like, okay, since it's about something, though, perhaps that can be my ceiling. So ceiling is 19. Then I worked my way down, and we have some big names in here, like Caligari, Nosferatu, mm -hmm. you know, Phantom of the Opera, Count of the Canary, Vampire, Uninvited, House of Wax, mm -hmm. which was remarkable in its 3D usage. Mm-hmm. So it kind of settled that I would not go below the maze at 34, because I think Gilman is better than Frog Boy. Yeah. So my range, it's a little large, but my range is 19 to 34. So your range is basically the same as my range. Oh, dope. Yeah, I started at the maze. I worked my way up, and I was drawn to the maze because it was also a movie about Richard Carlson fighting an amphibian. <laughs> and I came to the same conclusion you did, which is that Gilman is better than Frog Boy. And then I started working my way up, and I had as my ceiling number 20, Thing from Another World. Um, you know, I did notice Wolfman right above there, and I took note of Wolfman as probably being the last time that Universal had a hit with, like, an original monster. Mm -hmm. Right? But, you know, as you said, Wolfman's about something. I think Thing from Another World is better than this movie, although they have, like, a similar feel to them in some ways. Like, scientists go to exotic place 
that's like far removed from civilization and fight a monster and light it on fire at one point. <laughs> um, but I thought it was better. And then like right below Thing from Another World is Return of the Vampire, which is a movie we mostly just like because it's a lot of fun. And Creature from the Black Lagoon's a lot of fun. So I ended up with basically the same range as you, except that my ceiling was one movie lower. Okay. So what do we do now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, right in the middle of that range is The Walking Dead, Phantom of the Opera, Mad Love. Mm -hmm. What do you think about Creature from the Black Lagoon against um, Mad Love? You know, it's tough. Because they're very different kinds of movies, right? Like, one of them is the evil scientist with a crush on a gal archetype movie. And this one is the, you know, monster that wants a mate kind of movie. Yeah, there's not really any film in here that's comparable to Monster Wants a Mate. Except perhaps, like, Nosferatu at its (laughs) bare bones of, like, Creature Wants thing. I think this is... Gosh. And it's it's like tough, like, how do you rate this against Phantom of the Opera, which is such a, like, big deal spectacle of a movie? Yeah. I mean, I think this movie is, it has spectacle, but that's, I mean, maybe in the marketing with it being in 3D, but I when I go to see it, I'm not going to see it because of the spectacle. It's on a much smaller scale. Yeah. There's less characters in a smaller area. I do think... I think it's probably better than Walking Dead. I really like Walking Dead. I think it's a really cool movie. But I think Creature from the Black Lagoon is stronger because Walking Dead, you know, Walking Dead is a very interesting mix of mad scientist, revenge story, biblical undertones, and like Mm. gangster film noir stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool in how it mixes all those things. But Creature from the Black Lagoon is a lot purer, right? Like, it's just about this guilt man. Yeah, and I think that can be true of Mad Love. Mad Love is weird because it's an adaptation of Hands of Orlac that's, like, adding this obsessed lover plotline on top. Yeah. Um, But then we hit, like, Karuta Ejipeji. How do you judge this? How do you judge Page of Madness against anything, really, is a hard question. Yeah. I think this movie should go below Nosferatu. I do think that it's probably better paced than Nosferatu, but I feel like without Nosferatu, you don't get to this movie. Yeah, it's not like a direct through line, but what leads to Creature from the Black Lagoon, you would not get without Nosferatu. Yeah, I I don't know. I'm really unsure. No, I... I think I think that's fine, but Page of Madness still throws a wrench into things for me. I think I think the thing for me is that like there's a dividing line in here somewhere with regards to movies that are making like a statement about something. You know, because we've identified that Creature from the Black Lagoon isn't really doing that; it's just out to entertain us. And you know. Page of Madness was inspired by the director seeing the conditions of Yeah, like it's, it's talking and... about like mental health issues in Japan of the period. Um, you know, and and Nosferatu's about plague and Caligari's about mental health and you know, 
Return of the Vampire is not really about anything, but Thing from Another World's a Cold War thing. And well, Return of the Vampire was set during World War II. Sure. So yeah. it had, like, real-world connections. That's right, yeah. There was, um, like, a whole subplot about trying to get, like, spies out of Germany or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's put this below A Page of Madness, but above Mad Love. Okay, I'm I'm okay with that. It's 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 as the list gets bigger, you know, once you've got your range, it's harder to find exact spots because you're starting to have like a more and more graduated scale, right? With yeah, each, things are more diverse. With each movie that gets added to the list, you know, it's like it, the difference between having a ruler that goes like, you know, one centimeter two centimeter, three centimeter, and then, like, a ruler that goes, like, one millimeter, two millimeter, three millimeter, four millimeter, up to 20 millimeter, and then, like, having a ruler that has, like, nanometers in it or whatever, and so you're, you're, you're getting these, like, just more and more slight differences in quality, rather than being able to say, like, well, you know, obviously Dracula's better than, uh... Devil Bat. Right, Devil Bat, yeah, which is easy to say, yeah. So entering the list at the new number 25... Creature from the Black Lagoon, from 1954, directed by Jack Arnold. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other movies we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or you could reach out over Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you want to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review. Um, Doing it on Apple Podcasts really helps the show in terms of finding new listeners Or you can just recommend us to your friends on social media. Another way that you can help the show out is by heading to our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. We already talked about our Patreon at the top of the show, but just a reminder that you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month, and that helps support the show. It helps us pay our hosting fees on SoundCloud. It helps support the amount of time and research that goes into every episode. Um, and we just really appreciate that support from y'all. So be like Keenan. And head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. Yeah. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week we are going over to Warner Brothers um, for a movie that I've never seen. And I can only just make assumptions about from the title. It's Phantom of the Rue Morgue? Oh, Like a sequel to Murders in the Rue Morgue? Or like a mashup between Phantom of the Opera and Murders in the Rue Morgue. Like the the gorilla that's trying to get the girl is also like a disfigured opera composer. (laughs) I have written you an opera. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I guess we'll just have to find out next week. We will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.